Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, as part of the Distinguished Guest Lecture Series, a lecture by Professor Ian Fenlon, Professor of Historical Musicology at the University of Cambridge. Professor Fenlon's lecture, Life and Death, Public Music and Ritual in Renaissance Venice, was given in the HII on the 25th of November, 2010. Thank you very much indeed for that um, generous, extravagant welcome. Um, it's not my first time here, and every time I come back under some pretext or other, I always enjoy myself even more than the previous occasion. So it's a very great pleasure to be here uh, this evening. I'm going to start with a methodological consideration which I'm going to return to at the very end. So you can think of it as a, as a sandwich. It may still be controversial to suggest that historians of music ought to read anthropology, but it's certainly not novel. Nevertheless, it is fair to say that anthropology has probably made less of an impact on the study of the music of the past than it has on many other humanistic disciplines. This may be in part because, for some, anthropology competes with and challenges traditional historiography. A more optimistic view, and it's certainly mine, is that the two are complementary. And this evening I would like to suggest some ways in which anthropology can clarify the ritual and performative dimensions of the music of the past. By anthropology, I mean three particular strands of thought and practice, all of which overlap significantly, as well as exhibiting significant differences. The first, which is usually called political anthropology, deals with politics as system and structure, and puts more emphasis on theory and paradigm than on narrative. It also usefully emphasises that many symbols and processes which are not overtly political are often of great political significance. The second strand is symbolic anthropology, particularly as practised by Clifford Geertz and Victor Turner, which conceptualises culture as a system of meanings and symbols. And the third strand is practice-oriented anthropology, as it might be in the work of Pierre Bourdieu. Here, the emphasis is upon the complex interrelationship of individual practice and the dominant culture or social structure. As such, the objects of study are not only the laws and formal institutions of a society, but also the daily lives of its individual actors. In this context, a critically revealing practice is that of ritual. By this I mean a standardised human activity that is repeated and, above all, is symbolic in character. The element of symbolism is critical since it distinguishes ritual from habit or custom. Accordingly, ritual not need be religious in nature and certainly it need not be spectacular. Defined in this way... Ritual is an important part of politics as a symbolic statement 
about the social order. In the view of the American anthropologist David Kurtzer, there are five basic contributions of ritual to the political process, which he outlines as useful, though not canonical, categories. And they are binding together or symbolising a community, providing legitimacy, providing for solidarity without consensus, inspiring people to action, and fostering a particular worldview. Seen in this way, much anthropology conceives politics as part of a wider culture. It also conceives culture as a system of meanings and symbols both constructed out of and in turn organising both individual and collective practice. Because of its dramatic intensity, its evocation of the sacred and its symbolic power, ritual is one of the most effective ways of attaining insight into a culture. I should like to start with the screen in a somewhat unexpected place. This is Pompeo Batoni's large-scale canvas, The Triumph of Venice, one of the last major works in the long tradition of Venetian <coughs> history painting. Originally painted for Marco Foscarini, Venetian ambassador to the papal court, it now hangs in the North Carolina Museum of Art. At the centre of the composition, the traditional female personification of Venice holding a scepter gestures towards Minerva to the left, who, holding an olive branch and supporting a lance, presents to her the arts, represented by the putti playfully scattered around her feet. Putti in the foreground are representing the arts here, uh, painting, music, as I said, represented by the aulos of classical antiquity, poetry with a lyre and a sword, theatre with a mask, sculpture and architecture. All these are to be seen. On the right-hand side of the painting can be seen the allegorical figures of Ceres in the foreground, surrounded by plenty, baskets of fruit. And on a higher plane, higher up the canvas, fame, history and Mercury, who present an account of the Republic's achievements to six sages of classical antiquity. To the left, Neptune addresses Mars, pointing out to him the entrance to the Piazzetta, the traditional arrival point in early modern Venice. Framed by Jacopo Sansovino's mint and library buildings to the left, and the Doge's Palace and the Riva degli Schiavoni to the right. In short, then, this is a complex evocation of the so-called myth of Venice, the traditional view of Venice as the perfect state, unwalled and yet unconquered for over a thousand years, the home of liberty where the arts flourish. At the centre of Bertoni's painting is the allegorical figure of Venice herself, seated on a shell-backed throne, decorated with lion's heads and with dolphins at her feet. Lion of St Mark on the one hand, control of the seas on the other. She is accompanied by the doge, Leonardo Loredan, 
whose physiognomy is clearly derived from Giovanni Bellini's famous portrait in London. And this is a very interesting aspect of this painting, which is painted uh, around the centre of the, uh, around the middle of the 18th century, making a direct iconographical uh, reference, citation, from an early 16th century work. Uh, Loredan had been doge at a very critical, precise historical moment in the early 16th century, when in the early years, which followed the disastrous war of the League of Cambrai, when the French troops arrived just on the other side of the lagoon, uh, the fabric and the culture of the city were rejuvenated. And this process, inaugurated during Loredan's doge was then continued by his successor, Andrea Gritti. The object of this renovatio orbis was to impart an appropriate sense of splendour, modernity, magnificence and auctoritas to the Piazza San Marco. And indeed, most of the buildings which we see today around the sides of the square um, and which frame the Basilica and the Ducal Palace, the two fundamental foundation stones of the state, were in fact designed by Sansovino in those years. Uh, Sansovino, a refugee from the sack of Rome in 1527, who had been appointed chief architect to the Republic. While Sansovino's stylistic models in his scheme were Roman, the magisterial architectural language which he developed in the piazza also accommodated other elements of Venetian state rhetoric as it had evolved since the High Middle Ages. For example, in a number of prominent and symbolically significant locations in the square can be seen uh, the figure of Venice Justice, Venezia Justitia, which also has thinly disguised overtones of the Virgin Mary. Now, together with the Lion of St. Mark, perhaps the most familiar of all Venetian emblems, this figure, this twin figure of Venice combined with justice, was to become one of the most familiar vehicles for the transmission of the theme of Venetian authority, both on the terraferma in the Veneto and in the colonies, Cyprus, Crete and so on, as well as in Venice itself. Through such means, the citizens of Venice were constantly reminded of the essential features of the myth of Venice, expressed through sculpture, painting, music and ritual. And to gain some impression of this complex language at work, I should like now to consider two very different events of the 1570s. Firstly, the entry into the city of Henry III of France in 1574, and then the two-year plague, which beginning in the following year, wiped out one quarter of the population. These two contrasting and significant moments in Venetian history, the life and death of my title this afternoon, are to be read against a longer sequence, perhaps, beginning with the victory of the Holy League against the Turks at Lepanto in 1571, and the separate peace treaty, which Venice, one of the three main members of the Holy League, which had been formed to fight the Turks, 
concluded with the Ottoman Empire in 1573. <coughs> the visit of Henry III put the seal on a friendship which the Republic had been carefully nurturing for decades. In the bleak months which followed that separate peace treaty with the Turks, Venice had need of allies. The French, who had resolutely set their face against joining the Holy League, responded positively. And these factors, the factor of isolation, the factor of the importance of the French alliance, helped to explain the extraordinary enthusiasm with which Henry was welcomed to the city, the unprecedented reaction of the local press, and the elaborate character of the spectacular welcome which the Venetians devised for him at extremely short notice. On the morning of the entry, Henry was rowed from the Lido to, uh, to... Sorry, he was rowed from Murano to the Lido, which was both the actual and symbolic boundary of the city. I'm not going to give you too much detail about this, but there was a tremendous debate within the Senate about where he precisely was going to be welcomed into the city. And it wasn't the first time that an important guest had been uh, welcomed by the Republic. But obviously, since Venice is surrounded by water, there's a question about where the city ends and the lagoon actually begins. And the Lido was a particularly um, symbolic site uh, for the Venetians. It was there, for example, that the Doge was rowed out on an annual basis to perform the ritual act of marrying Venice to the sea on the occasion of the Feast of the Ascension. So it was at the Lido that the principal functionaries of church and state, together with some of the main components of the Venetian ceremonial machine, welcomed Henry onto Venetian soil and so into the Venetian Civitas. While the commercial foundations and prosperity of the Republic um, were represented by a very large flotilla of decorated brigantines manned by the guilds, therefore clear reference to labour, the rituals conducted at the Lido provided an opportunity both to honour the distinguished guest, but also, and importantly, to instruct all those present in the virtues and power of the state. And this was achieved through a spectacle of unusual beauty and imagination, theatrically enacted at the boundary of land and sea. Before Henry's visit, two temporary structures, they are said by some commentators to have been designed by Andrea Palladio, had been put up. The first of these was a triumphal arch, consciously modelled on that of Septimius Severus in Rome. Made of wood, simulated to resemble marble, the arch was decorated with a sequence of statues, inscriptions and paintings. The main iconographical themes were those of Venice as the dispenser of peace and justice and Henry himself, Rex Christianissimus Francorum, defender of the faith, On either side of the arch, the arms of France and Venice were displayed, while above the three arcades, paintings by uh, Veronese and Jacopo Tintoretto had been mounted. 
and the subject of these were Henry's great military triumphs over his Huguenot enemies, while on the other, uh, over the central passage, where you can just see these paintings uh, dimly indicated on the rear wall um, of the arch, uh, further scenes showed his election as King of Poland. Um, these, then, are the two important backgrounds to this moment. On the one hand, the continuing uh, religious disturbances in France, which Henry had left in order to take up his election as King of Poland. Uh, the Polish ambassador that had been to Paris after the election had encouraged him, beseeched him to accept um, this election, and he had then made the journey to, uh, to Warsaw, um, where he was formally crowned as King of Poland. Now, in the event, this had not lasted very long um, because of the death of his elder brother, and Catherine de' Medici had recalled him to France. The second temporary structure was that of a freely designed lodger. And you can see it as the second building there working from the left, and indeed in the foreground you can see a lot of the galleys uh, that I've just mentioned. The significance of the choice of this architectural type would not have been lost on the more alert members of the largely Venetian crowd that watched the spectacle. In the public realm, such structures were often used as ceremonial spaces, sometimes as places of debate and public discussion, and occasionally lodges even had a juridical function. Palladio himself, of course, had used the motif of a freestanding lodger inserted into a civic complex in two uh, buildings which must have been familiar to many. Firstly, the Loggia del Capitaniato in Vicenza, a symbolic um, reminder to the uh, population of Vicenza of their subservience to Venice. And the most famous one of all, perhaps, Sansovino's Loggetta, which had been constructed at the foot of the bell tower in St. Mark's Square. And Sansovino's Loggetta had the function of being an aristocratic forum reserved specifically for members of the ruling class, uh, for the patricians, when they were summoned to the square in order to uh, conduct uh, the business of state inside the Ducal Palace. With its uh, triumphal iconography and a changing cast of state officials who transacted their business uh, inside the Loggetta, uh, Sansovino's structure functioned as a permanent reminder of the rich benefits of Venetian government and of the Republic's dominion over the Adriatic. The upper friezes, for example, consist of a series of uh, references to the Venetian colonies, Cyprus, Crete, and to Venetian sea power. So Palladio's temporary lodger at San Nicolò del Lido also served as a reserve space where the King of France, accompanied by the Doge and the Papal Legate, uh, was to be received by the official representative of the church in Venice uh, before an elite audience. Uh, this is Vicentino's um, canvas, painted some years after the event, 20-odd 20, 20 years after the event, which um, 
was placed inside the uh, Ducal Palace itself. There's a detail from it. From a typological point of view, Palladio's structure is unconventional as a piece of entry furniture. As it came into view, it was revealed as a tall and airy construction which was painted like the arch in front of it to imitate marble. The front facade is made up of ten Corinthian columns um, and in a central space uh, beneath the painting uh, stood an altar which was placed in a circular niche. And above it was a sequence of canvases which presented four figures of victory, their arms raised in the act of coronation. The evident reference here was to the four great battles that Henry had won against his Protestant enemies, battles which, of course, had already been seen in the paintings of the preceding arch, while the four virtues are evidently to be intended to be those of the king himself. What we have to, as it were, creatively imagine ourselves doing is passing through the arch, being given a certain amount of politico-historical information about Henry as king of Poland and about his uh, military activities in France before he left, and then you go into the lodge of this temple-like structure where these themes are indeed um, further elaborated. And so it's really through these classical motifs that the lodger continued the theme already established by Palladio's arch, that of Venice as the new Rome. In this equation, Venice was not only equivalent to the capital of ancient Rome, but was superior to it, since the triumph of Catholicism, repeatedly referred to in the paintings of both the arch and the lodger, raised this new civilization to a higher level than that of pagan antiquity. Now, the focal point for the ritual that confirmed this message was the altar, which stood in the center of this lodger temple. And Henry now knelt, and as he did so, the traditional Te Deum and other pieces of music were sung by the choir of St. Mark's Basilica and... Henry was then blessed by the Patriarch of Venice. Once this had happened, the procession then turned round and retraced its steps, going from the lodger through the arch and out again. And of course, on its return, um, it could view elements of the decorative scheme that it had not seen on arrival. So this time there were inscriptions framed by the statues of faith and justice, further canvases showing Henry's reception in Poland, and the moment of his coronation. And it's clear, I think, that what's actually happening here is that effectively he's just been crowned again. So that a historical event which had taken place sometime previously is being amplified and in some sense duplicated by Henry's coronation inside the lodger. So this is an ingenious intertwining of historical events with a present ceremonial reality which has just been witnessed by all present. And it relies for its effect upon the invocation of ritual parallels in which the king's coronation in Poland was symbolically reenacted on the Lido. 
Henry then retraces his steps. He gets back into the Bucintoro, which is the Venetian state barge which uh, the Doge used on ceremonial occasions. And at this point, the whole of the lagoon erupts into noise uh, of various unstructured kinds. Cannon are let off, the church bells are started to ring, and so on. And it was at this moment that a piece of music composed by Zarlino, who was then the Maestro di Capella of the Basilica, was performed. The music does not survive, but the text, which is written in elegiac distichs, cast in the form of a dialogue, was printed. Uh, I'd just like to make a rather obvious point about ceremonial music, um, the extent to which this piece could be heard in the din of artillery fire and the noise of crowds must be doubted. Uh, such practical matters were probably of secondary interest to the choreographers of the occasion. It was more important, I think, that a sense of decorum was satisfied. This was achieved through the performance of a piece in Latin, the language of the learned elite, cast as a dialogue in a form then derived from classical literature. In other words, Zarlino's piece was conceived as an appropriate musical response, a parallel to the resonances of the ancient world evoked by Palladio's temporary structures. Um, and thought of in this way, this ought to encourage us to think about how they listened rather than how we are inclined to listen. Two different kinds of listening are going on. Tarlino's music uh, marks the end then of the kind of official ceremonies at the leader, performed by the highest officers in church and state through cultural forms, visual, literary, musical and ceremonial that were dense with symbolic meanings. And now began what was for most of those crowded into the hundreds of vessels moored in front of these temporary structures on the island, the true entry of Henry III into the city itself. These brigantines of the guilds were the principal escort. Henry made his triumphal entry past the Piazzetta, down the Grand Canal, and to the uh, Carfoscari um, and its adjoining palaces, where he and his retainers were to stay for the next ten days. Now, once they'd settled in, um, entertainments of various kinds were provided on a daily basis. I'm not going to go right through his uh, ceremonial agenda, uh, which took him to the arsenal, which took him to the ducal palace on a couple of occasions, um, which took him to the basilica, but just want to um, make the point that uh, amongst the entertainments that were provided outside Carfoscari um, were a series of musical performances. On the instructions of the Senate, a platoon of boats had been lashed together outside the palace, and it was here, on more than one occasion, uh, that groups of professional singers and instrumentalists performed music, some of which, especially uh, commissioned for the occasion, set texts in praise of the king and of his virtues and of Venice itself. So, it's again, it's a uh, 
type of rhetoric, which is that stitched Henry and his religious wars, as well as his Christian qualities, into a conjunction with the uh, Venetian conception of the superiority, the very special quality of the Venetian state. Here, too, we have some survivals. The words and music of two pieces by Andrea Gabriele have survived. And one of them relies on the image of Venice in its role as Queen of the Adriatic. There she is. Um, This painting is actually in the National Gallery uh, of Ireland. Um, I couldn't find it on the walls this morning, but it is in the collection. And as you can see, this actually is really drawing um, on the same sequence of references as the Venezia Venezia Giustizia, Virgin Mary uh, configurations, female, always the female figure associated with various rather obvious symbols. So on this occasion, she is actually wearing the crown uh, of her role as Queen of the Adriatic and with a laurel wreath is about to place that on top of the head of the Lion of St. Mark, who is crouched on the right-hand side. And this uh, image is not terribly good, I'm afraid, but what you can see in the background is clearly uh, the lagoon, and beyond it, some of the marshy wastes which start to occur uh, in front of the islands of the lagoon. And this... uh, is found all over the place. There it is again, a medal, mid-16th century medal by Andrea Spinelli, which shows, you can see on the right-hand side, um, Venice seated on a lion, again holding the scales of justice, with a cornucopia in her other hand, galleys in the background, uh, military symbols to the right, so capable of fighting both on land and at sea, and the label which reads Adriachi Regina Maris. Now, we'll hear this piece. It's by Andrea Gabrieli. Uh, it's scored for 12 voices arranged in two six-voice choirs. In performance, these may well have been separated. I can't be sure about that. But this idea of having alternatum choral music for two vocal groups which characteristically sing in alternation and then come together at the end um, was identified at the time and has been continually identified since as a Venetian style a Venetian manner by the second half of the 16th century you can find it uh, elsewhere, it becomes part of the grand baroque colossal manner of Roman polyphony around 1600, a Roman response uh, to uh, the idea that um, Protestant challenge should be met with splendour and magnificence. Um, And the text of this piece, which is Ecco Venezia Bella, uh, evokes the din. It's a portrait in music and words of of Henry's entry, which I've just described. Uh, And it's rather general in its eulogistic rhetoric, but it is absolutely quite specific in its allusions to Henry's visit. There's no doubt that this was one of the pieces that was performed uh, on the platoon of boats outside Kafosko.
I'd make a similar point about this piece as I made about the Zarlino. Um, this is not Monteverdi. Um, it's a piece of music which has a very precise function. It's an open air piece. It's going to be performed on a spectacular occasion in the context of a festival on the Grand Canal at night time. And uh, we are inclined to sit in concert halls and listen to this kind of music with great solemnity, uh, uh, silently, uh, reverentially. Uh, these were not the circumstances for which he was composed. And indeed, its actual technical musical resources are, to some extent, very straightforward and uncomplicated. Of a number of different themes that can be detected in the arrangements made to celebrate Henry III's visit to Venice. The most persistent relates 
to the king's title of his most Christian majesty. Henry's worthiness to inherit this title from Charles IX had been transformed into necessary action through the suppression of the Protestants, a policy which reached a climax, of course, with the infamous St Bartholomew's Day Massacre of August 1572. In common with the papal court, the Venetians viewed these events as essential to the salvation of France and, more generally, as serving the interests of the Catholic world. Read in the context of the mutual suspicion and hostility between Venice and Spain that worsened during 1572, as the Allies failed to galvanise the Holy League into further action against the Turks, the Venetian-Turkish peace uh, concluded in the following year. Uh, these, these events taken together helped to explain the warmth with which Henry was greeted. If this was one important message, another was the persistent portrayal of Venice as a new Rome, superior to that of the ancient world by virtue of its Christianity. The most obvious visual expression of this idea was the construction of Palladio's temporary structures at the Lido in a style, as I've suggested, that evokes parallels with Sansovino's remodelling of the square itself. There were musical analogues as well, notably Zarlino's Latin dialogue. In this sense, Henry's visit seems to have provoked an official response in which some of the most important local artists, architects and musicians collaborated in the production of ceremonial and theatrical occasions, united by a classicising theme. Intertwined with these like motifs were the long-standing rhetorical tropes of Venetian sea power and communal devotion. For the Venetians themselves, Henry's visit was seen not only as an opportune moment to strengthen an important alliance with one of the two great important European powers, but also a sign much needed in the aftermath of the peace treaty of their continuing special status, as they saw it, in the eyes of the Almighty and a confirmation of their imperial status. In the event, it was an impression that was to be short-lived. In the summer of 1575, a young couple from Trent took lodgings together with their children in the parish of San Marziale. Within a few days, all the members of the family fell ill and died. Other deaths soon occurred. The officials of the health board took possession of the house and declared that all had succumbed to the plague. The terrible epidemic that was to rage in Venice for the best part of two years had begun. During these years, the Venetians prayed a great deal, both in private and in public, to be released from the horrors of the epidemic. Whatever the physicians might say, the people were less convinced by medical theories than by traditional belief. In particular, there was a widespread attachment to the idea, derived from Hebrew tradition, that all pestilence was visited upon a sinful nation as divine retribution. As with the plagues of Egypt, 
or the epidemic that broke out amongst the Philistines after the capture of the Ark. When God's anger was expressed against states, it was believed, recourse to prayer and repentance was essential. Processions and the worship of relics were fundamental weapons. In terms of action, the emphasis on prayer, piety and penitence induced an intense atmosphere of collective devotion. Sermons, processions and fasting were the most common expressions of collective atonement and good works the principal means of expiation. Both the civic and ecclesiastical authorities actively encouraged popular involvement in the common responsibility of repentance. Contrary to some medical thinking, which was doubtful about allowing free public association, which it was said only encouraged the spread of the disease, public expiation through prayer and procession was one of the church's main strategies uh, to combat the plague. Here, as in other areas, trade with the outside world was another example, official opinion was often divided about how to react. At a popular level, it was strongly believed that both scriptural authority and previous experience dictated that divine anger could be placated only through public displays of humility and devotion. On the other hand, the health board was in favour of preventing church services and processions. During the plague of 1575-7, these conflicting arguments became subservient to counter-reformation doctrines which gave fresh impetus to the old idea of pestilence as God's punishment. And the Venetians were encouraged to respond with the traditional means of prayer, fasting and processions. In September 1576, after a fierce summer that had seen the plague at its worst, the Senate decided that the Doge, accompanied by senior officials of state, should themselves process around the piazza and then hear Mass in the Basilica on three successive days. And on the last of these, the Madonna Nicopea was solemnly carried while litanies were chanted and prayers recited. That's the Madonna Nicopea a precious piece of Byzantine art amongst uh, the booty brought to Venice after the capture of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade in 1204. Venetians believed that the Nicopea, which consists of a central image of the Virgin framed by 16 small enamels, had brought good fortune to those who had carried her in battle in Asia Minor, and they venerated it in the hope that it would bring similar blessings upon the Republic. The liturgy that was followed was that of the Roman Rite in these processions, but it was given local identity through the insertion of prayers to Mark and the Virgin, and of course by the presence of the icon itself. Here is very often in Venetian practice what you have um, is a liturgy which is generally understood and generally practiced, but which in some sense has been modified in order to make it specific to Venetian requirements. And in fact, inside St. Mark's Basilica, 
um, the right which is uh, enacted is, a specific, is specific to that building. It's called the Patriarchino, it's the private liturgy of the Doge. And the Doge in procession could carry that liturgy to other churches inside the city, but the only place it could be performed otherwise was inside the basilica. And everywhere else in the city, uh, the, the Roman rite was followed. And this is a nice example, if you like, of the politicization of liturgy, so that what you end up with is effectively a liturgy of state. And so by inserting these added elements, these references to St. Mark and these references to the Virgin, with whom the Venetians believed they had a special relationship, intercession was sought not only of the communion of saints who were invoked in the course of a normal liturgy, but also of the two major protectors of the city. And of course, in accordance with Venetian political theology, this was prosecuted through the agency of the Doge, who Venetians saw as Mark's representative on earth. At the climax of this campaign of public prayer and atonement, the Doge, Alvise Mocenigo, announced the decision to construct a votive church dedicated to Christ the Redeemer should the plague be lifted. And so in March of the following year, as the epidemic began to abate and the mortality rate fell, Mocenigo was able to lay the foundation stone of this newly commissioned building designed by Andrea Palladio and put up uh, on the island of the Giudecca. Palladio's imposing facade to the Church of the Redentore reflected in the water, is primarily intended to be viewed from the Zattere on the opposite side of the canal. Now, this is not merely an aesthetic matter, though it clearly is that. It's also the consequence of quite precise ritual requirements. From the beginning of this building project, it had been recognised that the Redentore had to meet rather particular ceremonial needs. As part of its vote the Senate had instituted an annual procession in thanksgiving for the city's liberation from the plague. It is, in fact, still held every July. This took the form of a ducal procession, or andata, as it is known. Uh, the Doge and the other officials of state, the high-ranking officials of state, processed on some 40 occasions in the course of the calendar by the end of the 16th century. The precise form of that procession is laid down in the ceremony books, and indeed there are images, various engravings and woodcuts, and indeed oil paintings which show it. And uh, the andata, uh, although performed by individuals, these were individuals who walked in the procession, not as themselves. They walk in the procession as the temporary holders of official office. And so it was decided that the Andata uh, would make the journey to the Church of the Redentore on an annual basis. Um, there's perhaps the most famous painting uh, of um, an Andata. Uh, this is uh, Bellini's painting of a procession in St. Mark's Square, dated 1496. Um, and the Doge, who is, of course, the fulcrum of the Andata, the most important person present, um, is actually shown uh, 
and right up here, I'll show you in detail in a moment. And the reason for that is that this painting was commissioned by one of the large confraternities, there were six of the city, um, who are processing with their relic of the true cross, which is being held underneath the awning in the centre here. So since they are the patrons of the work, uh, you know, quite understandably, as it were, uh, the squalor, di San Giovanni Evangelista, gets to be displayed right in the foreground, and uh, other confraternities are shown lined up around the sides, and the ducal party with members of the Senate and the various emblems of authority that were carried are off to the side. So, in order to accommodate this annual procession, uh, Palladio's design involves the provision, it's not really visible, I'm afraid, in this image, but there is a kind of little piazzetta in front of the steps, so the procession arrives across the water and then uh, goes up the steps, gathers itself in, in front on the piazzetta, then goes up the steps and in, inside the church. Um, so this is a rather interesting case of an occasion when, since the ceremonial requirements are known in advance, the architect has to respond in terms of designing the building. And this helps to explain uh, the rather particular qualities of this ground plan, um, as you can see. Um, in fact, there are three areas involved here. The church was maintained day in, day out uh, by the Cappuccini, who subscribed to the Benedictine rule. And every day the offices of the liturgy were chanted in the retro choir, which lies at the top of this ground plan, to the north as it were. Um, the rest of the church was only used on the occasion of this annual ceremony when this large number of people would arrive and they had to be accommodated somehow. And there's no contemporary description of how it actually was choreographed inside the building. But um, my guess is that the reason you have this rather uh, untraditional bulge here around and in front of the high altar is that the doge and the senate would have been accommodated in space and the fact that they were going to be uh, was a given for Palladio to, to, to deal with. And then everybody else who followed the procession was accommodated in the name of the church. Now, there's actually a rather interesting acoustical uh, aspect to this. A couple of years ago, I was involved in a project which went around various Phoenician churches and positioned singers in different places and then um, the acoustical qualities of those spaces in relation to hypothetical audiences uh, were uh, recorded, I mean, properly by technicians who knew how to do all this stuff uh, and what emerged in the case of the Red Entori was that there are three acoustics, almost as if you've got three churches inside one church if you went and sat in the retro choir while liturgical chants were sung, you were in this amazingly warm uh, acoustic lots of reverberation and resonance but it's still not so much um, time delay on it that you couldn't actually hear the detail. If you imagine that the choir, which went with the procession, the 
require a cynical moment of obsession. If you imagine the position there, and there are reasons why you would think that was the ideal position for it, which I won't go into unless people want to ask questions later. If you put the singers there and get them to sing, obviously, in the direction of the high altar, not down the nave, then the doge, who you could hypothetically put here, um, that was a great place to be. Um, you could hear even quite complex polyphony move, individual lines were clear. And of course, that position is right on the edge of uh, the cupola. Just to remind you again of this very characteristic Venetian element, which is stolen, so to speak, from the basilica itself and is repeated on so many uh, Venetian skylines. If, on the other hand, you imagined yourself to be one of the foot soldiers who was allowed to crown into the nave and just sort of, you know, hear what you could hear, um, then it was on the whole a fairly miserable experience. So that was actually rather interesting. So it, it raises the question of, you know, do we believe that 16th century architects knew anything about acoustics? And acoustics as a um, uh, sort of a science which deals with precise detail, which measures the reverberation of surfaces and all that sort of thing. This is only something which is developed and becomes effective in the 19th century. Um, although the Renaissance was a period when nearly everything you can imagine was uh, catalogued, uh, discussed, theorized, encyclopedies, well, entries were written about everything you can imagine from you know, botany to um, military uniforms to the classical world and so on, acoustics you will not find any mention of anywhere. Um, but an example like this, I think, does demonstrate that an architect like Palladio must have had quite a keen sense of what the acoustics would be in the buildings that he designed and would actually have accommodated the functions that he knew were to be performed within the spaces. In this particular case, it had to be an acoustic which, on the one hand, could accommodate speech and would enhance the human voice when preaching, which was something that would happen far more frequently than, um, than that... Uh, polyphonic music was performed there. At the same time, the, uh, the greatest occasion in the church year for the Red and Tory was the annual procession. In a speech made in 1576, Alvise Mocinigo admitted that the famine of 1569 the War of Cyprus and the fire of 1574, which destroyed part of the Doge's palace, had all been portents of divine wrath, and that these had then culminated in the outbreak of plague. To many Venetians, the decade of the 1570s must have seemed a time of reckoning with the Almighty. The victory at Lepanto and the visit of Henry III could and were celebrated as signs of God's favour towards a chosen people. But these moments of triumph and glory, exalted with all the resources of the state ceremonial apparatus, were framed by disasters. In the process of official mythologenesis that was designed to obfuscate and obscure as much as to celebrate, the arts were engaged in a way that is highly revealing of Venetian sensibilities and political processes in these troubled years. Music, liturgy and ceremony 
literature, architecture and painting were all brought into service as the Venetian ruling class attempted to inscribe the events of the post-Lepanto years into a majestic narrative that effectively underplayed political realities. Some sense of this official history can be gained from the extensive decorative scheme that was carried out as a result of the fires which gutted the Ducal Palace. There were, in fact, two of them in the 1570s. Uh, That, by the way, is a later picture of the procession to the Redentore, um, mid-17th century. And you can see uh, the crowds uh, going across the pontoon of the wooden pontoon built on bridges, on on boats, uh, to the church on the other side of the canal. This is Veronese's Apotheosis of Venice, which brings this decorative scheme to a conclusion. Venice is here represented by the traditional personification of the state, a figure with which you will now be very familiar, the female figure in the centre of regal bearing. Surrounded by allegorical figures representing peace, abundance, fame, felicity, and so on, she is poised in the act of being crowned by victory. So once again, as so often in the history of the Republic, the Venetian elite carefully adjusted the rhetoric of the myth of Venice so that it remained effective as both an expression of Venetian self-confidence as well as a means of social control while still taking account of the lessons of recent history. For all of its shaky foundations, the mythology continued as the nostalgic antiquarianism of Batoni's painting with which we began so clearly demonstrates as La Serenissima slid into terminal decline. The nature of the Venetian Republic was expressed through rituals, standardised, repeated events of symbolic character. These rituals acquired their force through the evocation of the sacred as well as the civic, often intermingling the two to the extent that they can no longer be separated. Such evocation intensified and legitimised the power of the ruling group. Nonetheless, it is necessary to resist the temptation to reduce political ritual to straightforward manipulation by politicians. Effective political ritual evokes patterns that are deeply rooted within the culture. Ritual may be an instrument for manipulating others, but it also shapes those who use it. Used cautiously and without too much theoretical baggage, anthropology is capable of producing a rich, cross-disciplinary harvest in historical musicology as in other areas of historical work. The historian's job, surely, is to cast the net as wide as possible in methodological terms. Or, in Isaiah Berlin's famous formulation, for us to be foxes rather than hedgehogs. Thank you. <laughs>